Matthew chapter 18, and this morning we're looking at verses 21 through 35. Let's go ahead and pray one more time before we open God's Word together this morning and hear it read and preached. Father, we thank you that your Word is living and that it's active. And it's not a dead letter like the magazines we read or the books or the journals or even the 24-hour news channels, but that this is a living Word. And we pray that as it goes out this morning, that it would be living and active, that it would be applied by your Spirit as each of us have need. That you would not allow it to fall on dead, cold hearts or dead, cold ears that it would enliven and stoke the flames of life where they already exist. We pray this in the name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, who is the living Word. Amen. Matthew chapter 18, verses 21 through 35. This is the holy and errant Word of God. Then Peter came up and said to him, Lord, how often will my brother sin against me and I forgive him? As many as seven times? Jesus said to him, I do not say to you seven times, but seventy-seven times. Therefore, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who wished to settle accounts with his servants. When he began to settle, one was brought to him who owed him ten thousand talents. And since he could not pay, his master ordered him to be sold with his wife and children and all that he had, and payment to be made. So the servant fell on his knees, imploring him, Have patience with me, and I will pay you everything. And out of pity for him, the master of that servant released him and forgave him the debt. But when that same servant went out, he found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred denarii. And seizing him, he began to choke him, saying, Pay what you owe. So his fellow servant fell down and pleaded with him, Have patience with me, and I will pay you. He refused, and went and put him in prison until he should pay the debt. When his fellow servants saw what had taken place, they were greatly distressed. And they went and reported to their master all that had taken place. Then his master summoned him and said to him, You wicked servant. I forgave you all that debt but you, because you pleaded with me, and should not you have had mercy on your fellow servant as I had mercy on you? And in anger, his master delivered him to the jailers until he should pay all his debt. So also my heavenly Father will do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother from your heart. Though the grass withers and the flower fades, The Word of God is forever. Thanks be to God. Amen. I was in a coffee shop earlier this week, and there was a young lady that was sitting in that coffee shop on her laptop, and as some are prone to do, on the cover of her laptop, she had different stickers that she had put on that laptop. And the biggest sticker that sat right in the middle of the cover of her laptop was in all capital letters, and it said, Peace. 
in all capital letters. And I was looking at the rest of her cover on her laptop, and my eyes immediately went to another sticker that was brightly colored and automatically drew my eyes to it. And on that sticker, there were these words. It said, and it had a certain subcategory of people. So, all subcategory of people are, and then it had another word. All subcategory of people are, and then it had a curse word. What kind of peace? There's a phrase that is routinely used, slogan today, love wins. It has a nice ring to it. It has a nice refrain. But in and of itself, it's absolutely meaningless. Now show me the context and let's see your love. Peace is always easy to proclaim. Love is always easy to speak about. But there is always a context for peace. And there's always a context for love. I want you to see first this morning the importance of the context of the church. The context of the church. Peter's question is this, how often will my brother sin against me and I forgive him? And then Jesus closes this parable with, so also my heavenly Father will do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother from your heart. He's reminding us that we're all together, that we have a heavenly Father, and that we're united together as brothers and sisters in Christ under this one heavenly Father. And that this particular teaching, which Jesus is getting ready to relay to us, He's teaching to us about the church. That we are to love those whom Christ loves. That we are to pursue peace with those whom Christ has peace. That's the context. So let's say from the start that it's impossible for you and I to live the Christian life apart from our fellow brothers and sisters in Christ, apart from Christians. We are always saved into a community. We are saved unto God and we are saved unto one another. Love for us is not an abstract idea when we talk about love. It's not a sentimental thought. It's not a mere emotion. This is our lived context within the body of Christ. We are seeking to manifest. We are seeking to grow in. We are seeking to perfect love. C.S. Lewis once said this in The Four Loves. He said, to love at all is to be vulnerable. Love anything and your heart will be wrung and possibly broken. If you want to make sure of keeping it intact, you must give it to no one, not even an animal. Wrap it carefully round with hobbies and little luxuries. Avoid all entanglements. Lock it up safe in the casket or coffin of your selfishness. But in the casket, safe, dark, motionless, airless, it will change. It will not be broke. It will become unbreakable, impenetrable, irredeemable. To love is to be vulnerable. We could say it another way. To love in a fallen world is to know pain. To love in a fallen world is to be sinned against. To receive injury. To receive harm. To suffer. 
Listen, the church is a gift. The Lord has given us to one another as a gift. He's given us brothers and sisters to walk alongside of in this life, to lean upon, to to be encouraged by, to be exhorted by, to be challenged by. Those that we can invest in that last for all of eternity. But if you are looking for safe relationships that never cause pain, that never cause injury, then the church isn't the place for you. The greatest pains I've experienced in my life have come from two different sources. My family and my church. And not to be crass, but that's the way it should be. Because this is where I am living my life in love. And so I'm vulnerable. We're seeking to love one another. Matthew has just walked us through Jesus' teaching on what to do if a, if a brother sins against us. We go to him, he says, but now we have a problem. If we go to our brother or sister and we confront him or her about their sin and then they ask us for forgiveness, what do we do? Of course, we would all answer, we forgive them. And what if they sin against us again? Well, I think we would all say, well, we forgive them. But Peter's question is this. What if they sin against you yet again? And yet again? And yet again? And yet again, and yet again. That's Peter's question. How many times do we have to forgive? Now, Peter is quite gracious in his suggestion. As many as seven times, he says, the rabbis of Peter's day, they believed that you should be willing to forgive someone up to three times. They were attempting to be very gracious, and, and they believed that you should forgive them up to three times. Why not more? Because you couldn't trust their repentance as something genuine if they kept sinning and coming back and asking for forgiveness. They'd shown themselves to be untrustworthy, and so, you were to be gracious, but you were only to be gracious up to a point. Peter, though, he, he has some comprehension. He, he's beginning to somewhat understand that Jesus calls His disciples to something that is even greater than this. And so, they said three times, the rabbis of His day. So, Peter says, well, I'll double it, and then I'll just add one more for extra measure. This is... More than gracious. This is more than sufficient and kind. But not for Christ. And not for His disciples. Jesus answers not seven times, but seventy-seven times. Some translate that as seventy times seven. It really doesn't matter. The math isn't what is important here. The issue is not the number. It's rather that there is no number. You aren't supposed to count. If you're counting, then you aren't forgiving. You're just putting off revenge for a while. Jesus' point is just forgive. Again, we need to understand the context. The context is of the church. This is a brother or sister. This is one for whom Christ has died. 
And so if he is willing to experience the agony of the cross to forgive their untold number of sins against him, then we must be willing to experience the far less agonizing experience of forgiving their limited sin against us. Importance of the context of the church. But that's not the only context for the necessity of forgiving others in this passage that Jesus gives us. Second, we have the important context of our own salvation. Jesus tells this absolutely masterful parable here where there is a king, and this king is ready to settle his accounts. And so he begins to call in all of his debtors, all of his servants that owe him a debt. And one of these servants that comes to him owes him a debt of 10,000 talents. Now that is a monstrous debt. To give you some sense of how much 10,000 talents is, uh, Josephus, a first century Jewish historian, uh, so lived at this time, wrote that at this time, all the taxes that would be collected in one year from the entire land of Palestine that were sent to Rome, all the taxes in Palestine equated to 8,000 talents. So here is a man that owes 10,000 talents. If we were trying to account for inflation and make some number that made sense to us, it would be something like billions upon billions of dollars. How did he get this much in debt? We don't know. Was he skimming off the top? Was he speculating? We don't know. But what we do know is he can't pay it. It's too much. And so, the king orders that the servant and that his family be sold into slavery and then that all of their possessions be sold as well. Now, this would not have covered the debt. There's no way it could have covered the debt. And so, it is a way that this king is now putting them in slavery for the rest of their lives. When the judgment is announced, the servant falls on his knees and he begins to plead with that king, and he pleads this, have patience with me, and I will repay you everything. Patience. Now, if you and I had been standing in that court on that day, if the scene hadn't been so sad, we would have chuckled to ourselves. Because patience doesn't matter. <laughs> There's no way he could pay everything. It's a... It's a shocking plea. But what's even more shocking is the response of the king. He doesn't grant what the servant asks. The servant asks for patience, but it wasn't patience that he received because patience would have done him very little. The king gives him more than he asked for, more than he could have possibly imagined. He gives him mercy. Jesus says, out of pity for him, the master of that servant released him and forgave his debt. He forgave his debt. He gave him life. Oh, to grace, how great a debtor, daily I'm constrained to be. But this is where the parable takes a turn, doesn't it? The servant leaves that throne room and he goes out immediately and he finds one of his fellow servants who owes him a debt. And it's a debt of a hundred denarii. Now, this is not an insignificant sum. A hundred denarii would have been 
equal to about 100 days of wages for a common laborer at that time. So it's not insignificant. But it's absolutely petty compared to what he owed the king. We see him go out and demand from this man that he pay his indebtedness. He has quickly forgotten his own indebtedness. He's quickly forgotten the mercy that had been shown to him. It's so easy to forget the mercy that's been shown to us. A lot of heartache could be avoided if we could but remember. Or maybe he didn't forget, but simply believed that the forgiveness that had been shown to him had no implications for what he was to show others. And how foolish that is, because the gospel always has implications. But here's a hard issue. You can see it in him. He's enraged. He goes up to this fellow servant and he begins to choke him. He's got his hands around his neck and he's choking him, demanding that he pay him that hundred denarii. And his fellow servant pleads words that are quite familiar. It's the same request. It's just more honest. He says, have patience with me and I will pay you. Not that I'll pay you everything, I'll pay you. He would have said through gasps of air. But the pleading here receives no mercy. The denial of mercy is almost as shocking as the king's giving mercy to him. It's not what we would expect. We don't even need the rest of the account. We don't need the rest of the servants saying how bad this is and running to the king. We don't need the king saying to this man, Oh, you wicked servant. We know that's wickedness. It's not what we would expect. But this is a parable. When Jesus tells parables... It's often so that you and I can find ourselves in the parable. And so the question becomes, is like David before Nathan, are we ready to condemn without seeing ourselves here? Am I forgiven and yet refuse to forgive some of my fellow servants of the great king? That's a question we have to wrestle with. And not just a question that you and I have to wrestle with once, but a question that we have to wrestle with throughout the course of our Christian lives time and time and time again because this is the context. Because all of our life is now lived in the context of having been forgiven. Those given much are expected to give much. And so that leads to our final point. The important context of our own hearts. The important context of the church, the important context of our own salvation, and now the important context of our own hearts. I know questions that are brewing right now, and I know because I know my own heart. You hear this passage, and you hear this kind of teaching, and you think, well, is Jesus asking us to be doormats here? Is He requiring that we be trampled on time and time again? And the answer is no. If someone tells a lie about us, we have a right to correct that lie, though I always want to be careful in doing so. I think we probably jump to defending ourselves much more often than we need to. We don't need to be defensive over and over. 
But the liar himself or herself is always to be forgiven. Does this mean that we have to be naive with people and treat them like nothing ever happened? And the answer to that is no. We don't have to forget if a person gossiped about things that we had told them in confidence and then they had spread those things about us. We aren't required to keep telling them things in confidence. But we are required to forgive them. Life, the death, the burial, the resurrection, the ascension, the return of our Lord in history and applied to our lives, it means that we forgive instead of counsel, cancel one another. We work reconciliation, not vengeance. We respond in love, not in kind. This means that we not only seek to forgive, but we seek to have sacrificial compassion for those who have sinned against us. And that's countercultural. We seek to have compassion for those that have sinned against us. The king is absolutely enraged at this forgiven servant because mercy is not in his heart. He's received so much, and yet now he gives so little. My friends, the gospel has implications. I'm afraid too often we just see it as something that we receive, and as if it just stops there. But it has implications. It is now to affect everything that I am and everything that I do. It means that I'm not just a receiver of mercy, but now I am a dispenser of mercy. There's an odd reality in the Christian life. At least I find it odd. But the more rightly I comprehend and assess the wickedness of my own sin, the more willing I am to forgive the sin of others. Why? Because the forgiveness, the mercy that has been extended to me, my sin, which seems all the more incredible to my heart as I come to grips with it more and more, it makes me more and more willing to forgive others. Because their sin against me is petty compared to the sin that I have committed against my God. Show me a Christian quick to forgive. And that's a Christian who understands the gospel. The gospel has implications. It breeds forgiveness. It breeds compassion. I want to caution us though here because this can get flipped on its head and I think too often does. Christians say, well, Jesus says that we're supposed to forgive, and so you need to forgive me. Imagine a young couple who is recently married, and they are both Christians, and they come to my study here at the church one day because they're in need of counsel, and they've been married for a short period of time, and they're young, and their faith is is relatively young, but they have faith. And as they sit there with me, the wife is in tears, and she says through her tears, she says, my young husband has just confessed to me that he has committed adultery in our marriage. 
he has sinned against her. He's breached the covenant relationship. He has given what is only rightfully belongs to her to someone else. And he's gone, done great damage. And she is sitting there in tears and crying. And this brother says, I don't understand why she keeps crying. I have already said I'm sorry. I have already asked for forgiveness. And Jesus says that you are to forgive your brother if he sins against you. His heart is not understood. The gospel has all of a sudden been weaponized in a way that strikes against everything that it stands for. This is a brother who has missed the heart of the passage. The gospel frees us to give, not to demand. And that is the concern of Jesus at the end of this passage, the heart. The words almost as you read them, they, they seem unchristlike. They don't seem like the gospel. It seems very works-oriented when you read it on its face. He says, so also my heavenly Father will do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother from your heart. How can this be? That doesn't feel like gospel. Because as recipients of such an incomprehensible forgiveness and compassion, it is impossible, Jesus is saying. It's impossible if we have been filled with that kind of forgiveness and that kind of compassion that we wouldn't then manifest that forgiveness and compassion to others. It is not that we somehow earn God the Father's forgiveness by forgiving one another. It is that we show we have been forgiven by bearing the fruit of forgiveness. We pray this, forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. I love an illustration I read of this. That forgiveness is like taking a breath and taking air into your lungs. And I think that is good. You can... Inhale only if you exhale the previous breath. If you refuse to release the forgiveness to someone else, then you can't receive forgiveness in by taking the breath in. You will suffocate quickly. The heart is either open or it is closed. And if it's open and willing and active in forgiving others, then it will be open and willing and active in receiving God's compassion and God's forgiveness. But if it's locked up to one, then it's locked up to the other. You say, but you don't understand what that person has done to me. You don't understand the injury that this brother or sister has done to me. But you see, you take a breath in of his forgiveness and his compassion, and then it is from that that strengthening, that then you expend that forgiveness and that compassion that you've received. We're all children of the Father, forgiven. And so we are forgivers. Our Father did not cancel us. So we cannot cancel one another. 
don't think you need me to apply this too far here. Uh, but the church needs to shine this forth all the time. But our society, especially right now, needs the church to shine this forward. We have a culture that is imploding because it doesn't know how to listen and how to have compassion and how to forgive. But we know. We know. I want to close this morning by reading something much longer than I normally do, but it's one of the best modern-day accounts of a Christian and what it looks like to forgive. Again, you'll notice in her account the importance of context, all three of these things here, the context of the church, the context of her own salvation, the context of her own heart and battling it, and then the context of drawing breath from the Lord Jesus as she seeks to forgive. And it won't surprise any of you to hear that this is Corey Tinboom. She writes about a day in Munich, Germany in 1947. This was just a couple of days or a couple of years after Nazi Germany had surrendered in World War II. And she was there in Munich, Germany with the message of God's forgiveness. And she says this, It was the truth they needed most to hear in that bitter, bombed-out land, and I gave them my favorite mental picture. Maybe because the sea is never far from a Hollander's mind, I like to think that that's where forgiven sins were thrown. When we confess our sins, I said, God casts them into the deepest ocean, gone forever. The solemn faces stared back at me, not quite daring to believe. There were never questions after a talk in Germany in 1947. People stood up in silence. And silence collected the wraps, and silence left the room. And that's when I saw him, working his way forward against the others. One moment I saw the overcoat and the brown hat. The next, a blue uniform and a visored cap with its skull and crossbones. It came back with a rush. The huge room with its harsh overhead lights, the pathetic pile of dresses and shoes in the center of the floor, the shame of walking naked past this man. I could see my sister's frail form ahead of me, ribs sharp beneath the parchment skin. Betsy, how thin you were. Betsy and I had been arrested for concealing Jews in our home during the Nazi occupation of Holland. This man had been a guard at Ravensbrück concentration camp where we were sent. Now he was in front of me, hand thrust out. A fine message, Fräulein. How good it is to know that, as you say, all our sins are at the bottom of the sea. And I, who had spoken so glibly of forgiveness, fumbled in my pocketbook rather than take that hand. He would not remember me, of course. How could he remember one prisoner among those thousands of women? But I remembered him and the leather crop swinging from his belt. It was the first time since my release that I had been face to face with one of my captors and my blood seemed to freeze. You mentioned Ravensbrook in your talk, he was saying. I was a guard in there. 
No, he did not remember me. But since that time, he went on, I have become a Christian. I know that God has forgiven me for the cruel things I did there, but I would like to hear it from your lips as well. Fraulein, again the hand came out, will you forgive me? And I stood there, I whose sins had every day to be forgiven, and could not. Betsy had died in that place. Could he erase her slow, terrible death simply for the asking? It could not have been many seconds he stood there, hand held out, but to me it seemed hours as I wrestled with the most difficult thing I had ever had to do, for I had to do it. I knew that. If you do not forgive men their trespasses, Jesus says, neither will your Father in heaven forgive your trespasses. I knew it not only as a commandment of God, but as a daily experience. She then drew the breath in. She prayed silently. Jesus, help me. I can lift my hand. I can do that much. You supply the feeling. And so woodenly, mechanically, I thrust my hand into the one stretched out to me. And as I did, an incredible thing took place. The current started and my shoulder raced down my arms, sprang into our joined hands, and then this healing warmth seemed to flood my whole being, bringing tears to my eyes. I forgive you, brother, I cried. With all my heart, I forgive you. For a long moment, we grasped each other's hands, the former guard and the former prisoner. I had never known God's love so intensely as I did then. She understood from the heart. She understood the context that here is now a brother in the church, a child of the living God. She understood the context of her own redemption, how much God had forgiven her. And she understood the context of her own heart. And she had to forgive him. Quoted to you last week, Ephesians 4.32. It often goes through my mind. Be kind to one another. Tenderhearted. Forgiving one another as God in Christ Jesus has forgiven you. The other passage that goes through my head when I'm needing to forgive someone in the church is, I admit, is ripped out of context, but I think it fits. It's in Hebrews 12 where the writer of Hebrews says this. He says, in your struggle against sin, you have not resisted to the point of shedding your blood. And that's true. None of us have. None of us have resisted to the point of shedding our blood. We can make this sacrifice because we have received a greater sacrifice. We can grant this forgiveness because we have received a greater forgiveness. Now, does that mean that all the pain disappears? And the answer is no. There are pains that people will cause you that are so deep they are like caverns of pain. But this is what I know. 
that as you and I extend forgiveness, that pain, those, those deep wounds of pain, they begin to scar over. And you begin to scar over a little, and new flesh arises there, and, and it just becomes a little less tender to the touch over time. Now, every once in a while, something will happen that brushes up against that old wound and that scarred area, and all of a sudden, you'll be inflamed with pain again. But it just becomes a little less intense over time. Just a little less deep. And there's more and more healing. There's more and more life. Friends, His mercy is sufficient to forgive all of your sins. And it's sufficient for you to forgive all of the sins that are committed against you by your brothers and sisters in Christ. So let's be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ Jesus has forgiven you. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we are thankful that your mercy is so great. I could cover over a multitude of our sins. We're thankful that our salvation is not by works, but it is by your grace, for we have a debt we could never repay. And we are thankful that you fill us with that forgiveness and that mercy, and we pray that we would be those who work out our salvation with fear and trembling. And even as we have received mercy, that we are dispensers of mercy. We pray that you would continue to bind us together as brothers and sisters in Christ. That we would love deeply. That we would forgive deeply. And that we would fellowship deeply together. As we seek your glory and your praise. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.